Hello, and welcome back to Wilderness Wanderings. I'm your host, David Nolan. On today's episode, we're going to dive into a study that is going to take us a few episodes to peel back the layers and really get to the heart of the matter. Before I begin, I want to encourage you to visit our website at wildernesswanderings.org. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please check out the affiliated sponsors. Please know that any funds we receive go directly to the production cost of this program, with a significant portion going to support local ministries in the Austin, Texas area. One of my personal Christian heroes of the past, G.K. Chesterton, once made the observation, In the valley we see great things. From the peaks we see small things. There are points in time that stand out as markers along our spiritual journeys when only we can recognize God's presence and our response to it. The year 1993 was an interesting year in my personal journey of faith. That summer, I had the distinct privilege of serving the Lord in the mission field as part of a team partnered in Hong Kong. For eight weeks, we utilized conversational English teaching camps to develop relationships with high school and college students that provided opportunities for us to share the love of Jesus Christ and the message of his gift of salvation. One week, we led a Christian camp where each night was highlighted by a truly inspirational worship experience. A different one of our team members would take turns leading the music each night, and my night came on the final night of the week. I led the group of about 500 high school students and counselors in various choruses and hymns, both in English and in the Cantonese dialect native to the region. The last song of the night was Amazing Grace. As was our practice all week, the first verse we would sing in English and the second we would sing in Cantonese. However, I nearly fell on my knees in worship at the sound that touched my ears when we sang the last verse. Now, I encouraged the congregation to sing in their choice of language, and the blend of Cantonese, English, and even some Mandarin Chinese shook my soul and ignited a fire of worship in my heart that brought tears streaming down my cheeks. Imagine the words sung in this beautiful mix. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. My words can hardly express the joy that enraptured my heart at the sound that echoed quietly through that auditorium. That summer, I made a commitment to full-time vocational ministry and vowed to return to the mission field one day. However, over the next couple of years, I began to see my own life start to spiral out of control. I became spiritually and emotionally frustrated and began to feel alone and isolated. So I ran. Three years later, I became so discouraged that I left town. In fact, I left the state and moved a little over 500 miles away in an effort to abandon my failures and ultimately my faith. 1 Kings chapter 19 tells the story of an episode in the life of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was from a small backwater town of Tishbe. Israel had been under the kingship of Ahab, whose primary wife was a foreign queen named Jezebel. Under their leadership, Israel now was forced to worship two fertility gods, Baal, the male, and Asherah, the female, instead of the Lord God Yahweh. Elijah appears on the scene and declares a a three-and-a-half-year drought and then disappears. 
During that time, God hides him along a stream called the Brook Cherith, where he feeds him with food delivered by ravens, birds who were considered ritually unclean according to Jewish law. Three and a half years later, Elijah shows up again and challenges the prophets and priests of Baal and Asherah at Mount Carmel on the north coast of Israel. It is there that Elijah wins the challenge and then orders the crowd of onlookers to destroy the false prophets and priests, 850 in all. And this is where the story takes a turn. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he, Elijah, was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Imagine how Elijah must have felt after his experience on Mount Carmel. He mocks, defeats, and destroys 850 false prophets of a foreign god before the entire nation. He demonstrates the power of the Almighty God. And the response is a death sentence. Elijah had just put God's reputation on the line, and God came through in a mighty, miraculous display of power and authority. And the very person the message was intended for spurned him and promised to deliver him to death. This defeat didn't even faze her. And I used to wonder why Elijah ran. But now I think I understand. You see, Elijah forgot. Just like I forgot the promises of God when I returned from Hong Kong, Elijah forgot the word of God when faced with the fear for his life. This brash foreign queen was not afraid of the god who gave him the power to burn a saturated altar and kill all 850 of her prophets single-handedly. Just like I was afraid, I was alone in my experience with God. Elijah was afraid, and he ran. Also, I think there was a little bit of pride in the mix of Elijah's psyche at the time. He just experienced this great, magnificent demonstration of God's power through his hand. God had been working in his life to affect the lives of others for three and a half years. He was the preeminent mouthpiece of God in the midst of a nation that was continuously turned its back on him. Elijah had just secured a major victory in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. That has got to swell your chest a little bit. I know the feeling because those same emotions of pride and ego hit me when I returned from Hong Kong, and sure enough, the response I got deflated that ego faster than a popped balloon. So I ran. I left. Dropped out of school, left town for a desert town I knew nothing about. I even went through a time when, if anyone even mentioned God to me, I would get violently sick to my stomach. One time I was even so enraged to the point of slamming the door in one believer's face. Fortunately, Elijah had the presence of mind to run to God at Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. As he abandoned his companion in Jezreel, he ventured forth alone. And all along the way, God reminded his prophet of very specific promises 
that would prove to be the bedrock of his faith to come. First, there was the reminder of God's provision. A despondent, depressed, and discouraged Elijah, wishing to die, sleeps under a tree in the wilderness of sin. It is here that God reminds him of who provided him with bread and water during a three-and-a-half-year famine. It was here that he reminded him of the bread he provided while in Zarephath. It was here that God provided for him again, so that he might have strength for the journey ahead. Just as God provides physical nourishment for our physical journey, he provides a spiritual nourishment for our spiritual journey. And all we have to do is remember to get up and eat. Secondly, there is the reminder of God's perseverance. His nourishment provided Elijah with the strength to travel for 40 days and nights. What may not seem like a lot with God can go a long way to bringing you to where he wants you. The Psalms remind us that his mercies endure forever and are made new every morning. No matter how long the journey may seem, he will give you the strength to make it through. Thirdly, there is the reminder of God's power. How powerful is our God, who can rain fire from heaven, breathe wind that can break mountains, and shake the very foundations of the earth so that it burns with fire? Our God can control the weather and hold the earth in the palm of his hand. He can withhold rain and unleash storms, and yet, with a word, calm that same storm. If God has so much power over nature, how much more can he have power over our enemies? Then there's the reminder of God's presence. What is the evidence of an unseen God? Nature? Miracles? Wonders? None of these come close to the convincing evidence of his own word. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, six times it is noted, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And it was only after this that the miracles occurred, not before. And now the word of the Lord comes after a majestic show of God's power. However, it is specifically noted that God's presence is not in those powerful displays, but rather his presence is noted by the sound of a gentle whisper. Next, there is the reminder of God's protection. God will ordain the protection of his prophet, just as he protected him by hiding him by the brook Cherith and with the foreign widow in Zarephath, God will protect him by anointing a new king over a rival nation that will bring destruction to the kingdom of Ahab. When your own world seems its darkest, God will protect you and keep you safe from harm even if you don't see how, and that protection may very well come from an unexpected source. Next, we have the reminder of God's providence. Just as with Job, nothing happens in our world that is not filtered through the hand of God. God is in control of our destiny. He is not the puppet master, but he is the master of all things. He ordains kings. He is the ruler of all nations, the king of kings, the lord of lords, and it is all a part of his divine plan for the ultimate redemption of the world. And finally, there's the reminder of God's people. Elijah's number one chief complaint, as was mine, 
is that he felt alone. He felt as if no one else cared. Nobody was as committed to the cause as he was. The fact is, we are not alone. The prophet Obadiah had even hidden prophets in caves to protect them from Jezebel and Ahab's wrath, and he even told Elijah this. God has provided the church to us as a means of encouragement when we are down, for building us up in our faith, for growing us into the likeness of his Son, Jesus Christ. He will not leave us alone, for we are his remnant. Over the next few weeks, we're going to explore each of these bedrock truths that God himself used to remind his prophet who was in control in Israel. God reminded Elijah who he belonged to. Today, God still reminds his children who is in charge and who we belong to. In the desert of San Antonio during the fall of 1997, God reminded me of who I belong to while I was wandering through my own wilderness of sin. As his word promised, he restored unto me the joy of my salvation, and his mercies are made new in my heart. All these reminders, however, pale in comparison to the simple reminder that we are not alone in this world. Although we do have his Holy Spirit living within us, he has commissioned the church to be his representative in this world to encourage and build up his children into his likeness. As imperfect as we may be individually, God wouldn't have it any other way. For it is in our inherent weakness that his sufficient grace is made perfect. Join us next time as we explore the question that God challenged Elijah with while he was hiding out in that mountain cave. It is our prayer that you have been enriched by this time together. Please visit us at wildernesswanderings.org and check out our sponsors there. If you have any prayer requests, please email us at prayer at wildernesswanderings.org. Until next time, this is David Nolan, praying for you as we wander further into the riches and wonder of God's grace. Music